Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program, or ESCP, has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between the War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of dialogue, War College students travel across the country speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, however, the ESCP has unfortunately had to scale back the travels of our students. Here at A Better Peace, however, we aim to pick up the slack by giving Eisenhower Program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights. Today's podcast is the first in a planned series. Today's topic is soft power. What is it and how can it be deployed by the United States and by its potential rivals? Ever since its invention by Harvard's Joseph Nye in the early 1990s, the term soft power has been used to describe a range of policies and actions that rely less on force and more on attraction. Nye developed the term to counter charges that the United States in a post-Cold War world was doomed to decline as its relative hard power advantages diminished. Ironically, contemporary commentators use the term to warn that Washington has become too fixated on hard power and is in danger of falling behind its rivals, especially in Beijing. Our guests today to talk about soft power are three members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2021. Brigadier General Abdul Sami of Pakistan has held various command staff and instructional appointments in infantry and engineer formations across Pakistan, including the Pak-Afghan border fencing project. Before attending the U.S. Army War College, he was chief of staff of an Army Corps in Karachi. Lieutenant Colonel Kate Sanborn is an engineer in the U.S. Army with 19 years of service. She graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2002 and holds a Ph.D. in civil engineering from Georgia Tech. Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn's assignments include deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and before attending the U.S. Army War College, Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn commanded the Honolulu District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at Fort Shafter, Hawaii. Finally, Mr. Ron Hawkins, in more than two decades at the State Department, has been a Public Affairs Officer, or PAO, at the U.S. Embassy in Kampala, Uganda, Bucharest, Romania, and Khartoum, Sudan. Before that, he had assignments in Washington, D.C., Sarajevo, Reykjavik, and Algiers. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. So, General Sammy, I want to start with you. Part of the uh, the Eisenhower program is students have prepared speeches, and I wanted to give each of you a chance to summarize what you would have talked about uh, if we were in a uh, large auditorium with hundreds of people. Right. Thank you, Ron, again. Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here and uh, to join you and share a perspective from Pakistan on China's Belt and Road Initiative, 
called China Pakistan Economic Corridor or CPEC for short. I will briefly mention Pakistan's involvement in global war on terror that caused infrastructural gaps to open up in the country, how Pakistan is partnering with China and other countries to address these gaps, and in the end, we'll briefly comment on the environmental and debt sustainability aspects of some of these projects. Now, Pakistan is geographically uh, located in an interesting neighborhood. We have China towards north, India towards east, Afghanistan and Iran towards west, and North Arabian Sea towards south. The security situation in the region has largely remained turbulent for much of the last four decades. First, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, and then the global war on terror from 2001 till this day. Over the last two decades of the global war on terror, Pakistan has paid a very heavy cost for the peace that exists there today. More than 75,000 people died, including more than 8,500 brave men and women of the law enforcement agencies. The infrastructure took a major hit too. To give you an idea, by 2014, Pakistan's power sector had a capacity shortfall of around 7,000 megawatts. The implication was that the country had to experience an average of four to six hours of daily power outages. It was adversely affecting the industrial productivity and the economy. One estimate, in fact, put this annual losses up to as much as 3% of the GDP. Now, to get out of this downward spiral, uh, you would imagine that an emergent intervention was needed. So in April 2015, Pakistan signed a series of memoranda of understanding with China for investments in power, road, rail, and other infrastructures. Some areas were also identified for development of special economic zones. The idea was to address the power sector crisis on fast track and simultaneously develop the other sectors. Five years on, after completion of many power projects today, Pakistan has substantial surplus power generation capacity. The industrial sector is now working better and the economy appears to be on the mend. There have been two major concerns on these projects though, uh, environmental sustainability and debt sustainability. So I'll quickly cover the environment part first. Uh, CPAC included eight coal power projects. There were three major reasons for that. One, it's the quickest to bring power online. And given the state of economy at that time, was it was kind of a compulsion. Uh, two, coal was almost missing from Pakistan's power generation mix at only 3%. And three, Pakistan sat on world's second largest lignite coal reserve completely untapped. That had potential. Even after completion of CPAC coal projects, coal still accounts for only 16% of Pakistan's energy mix as compared to 58 and 56% in the large neighboring economies of China and India respectively. Despite that, Pakistan has announced a no new coal power plants policy in December last year and is pushing for renewable energy technologies. As for the debt sustainability, however, cumulative Chinese loan represents only 6% of Pakistan's public debt portfolio. The rest comes from other foreign and domestic sources. 
So we have parliamentary oversight and consultation with partners like IMF and World Bank that kind of ensures that only the financially viable projects are approved as part of the CPAC. The focus these days is to seek foreign investment in special economic zones for export-oriented industries that can leverage Pakistan's abundant raw materials and cheaper labor force. Work on two of these special economic zones is in advanced stage, and these are attracting investments from many countries due to lucrative incentives that these offer. If I were to sum up, Ron, uh, Ron I would quickly say that uh, Pakistan's uh, long involvement in the global war on terror has caused large gaps to open up in infrastructure, particularly the power, road, rail, and industrial sectors. China has invested in a few of these projects. There are plenty that uh, need to be done. Pakistan has recently taken steps to move away from coal power plants towards more renewable energy projects, and the Chinese debt still forms a small proportion of Pakistan's public debt. Call it soft power or geoeconomics, I sincerely hope that the United States and other partners take a collaborative approach towards it, as the infrastructural and developmental needs in Asia are too huge to be covered by Belt and Road Initiative alone. Thank you, Ron, for your time and looking forward to the discussion and any specific questions. So it's over to you. Thank you, Sammy. That was a great start. And uh, questions are already coming to mind, but I want to hear from your colleagues first. So let's go to you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kate Sanborn. Thanks, Ron. And again, appreciate the time. Uh, so my talk is about soft power in the Pacific Islands and specifically with competition to China. That's based on my experience as the commander for the Corps of Engineers, where one of my responsibilities was to coordinate and oversee many U.S. federally funded engineering projects in Pacific Island countries, and specifically those compact island countries. Um, what I experienced, what I saw, was that if the United States wants to compete with China's use of soft power in those countries then there's really three hurdles that we need to try to overcome. The first is the perception of China's head start. Despite being in compact agreements with these countries, the actions and the volume of trade and the volume of aid, financial aid provided currently by China seems to overshadow what some of the U.S. efforts have been. The second hurdle is the tactics that China is using, which appear to center on infrastructure developed infrastructure development, which is uncoordinated with the needs of the island, which sometimes appears to have dual purposes and is always built with foreign labor and material, so no benefit to the local economy and in the long run, limited benefit to the islands. This is also combined with alleged attempts to bribe government officials, which did happen, unfortunately, when I was out on a visit in one of those islands. The third and probably the most difficult hurdle is the challenge of developing an integrated and synchronized effort by the U.S. federal agencies to fulfill the needs of our island partners and optimize the full potential of our national power using all of our instruments. In conclusion, it's really a challenge. These islands are, they're logistically challenging. They have a lot of needs. And there's definitely China out there in a big way doing some big projects that 
if the United States doesn't look at our approach to it, we have a lot of ability to counter this in the soft power realm. Um, and we can we can do that and support the actual needs of those Pacific Island countries and make sure that the investment isn't short-lived on impact. I like to call it the uh, paper tiger of soft power is when you have just a short-lived impact. My concern is if we don't address it and we don't work to overcome these hurdles, that we'll start to see the first steps of losing the great power competition in these tiny islands in the Pacific. I look forward to your questions and the discussion that will follow. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Kate. And Ron Hawkins, the perspective of the State Department, or a member of the State Department. None of us is speaking for our particular institutions. Well, good morning, everybody, and, and uh, thank you very much for allowing me to be a part of this. Um, what I wanted to talk about was the use of soft power in engaging with a, with a foreign audience. And as mentioned, I'm a foreign service officer, so I'm with the State Department. Um, and overseas, we look for creative ways to engage the public to convey uh, either American culture, American history, American values, American ideals. And one way that we did this was working with our military colleagues overseas to play baseball. So sports in general, and, and, and baseball in particular, are excellent conduits through which we convey powerful messages regarding American democratic values with our foreign audience. Firstly, it's a game with rules, and everybody must follow the same rules, so we showcase rule of law. <clears throat> Secondly, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight, Christian or Muslim, anyone can play. So it's very inclusive. And in playing, all try at the best of their abilities, and any team can win, not just the one with the best uniform or fanciest equipment. So it's very democratic. Additionally, and very significantly, we have a stellar example from the game of baseball of an individual who contributed significantly to making America a better place. I'm thinking of Jackie Robinson. And on April 15th, 1947, Jackie was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball when he took to then Ebbets Field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Throughout his first year with the team, he underwent terrible uh, verbal abuse, trials, tribulations, including threats to him and his family. But his response to this was, all, you know, his response to everything was non-violence. Now, you, you might be asking yourself, why choose a person from so long ago to complement our sports initiative? You know, when modern athletes today continue to raise questions about racial inequality in America. Well, I wanted someone who was historical, who was not politically charged in today's context, and whose legacy has endured. We can point to the effects that Jackie had uh, on baseball and on America, and we were able to tap into them uh, and tap into his family uh, to help us share that legacy. We did a couple of programs, one in Romania. Uh, so we did clinics with kids. We brought out retired Major League Baseball players, and we brought out Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter, to help, again, engage the public, discuss these American values, and showcase them. In Uganda, uh, we did the same thing. We had clinics with kids across the country. And David Robinson, Jackie's son, actually lives in nearby Tanzania. And he came up for, for some events. So it really helped to make it real for these kids. And it was a much better way to engage than just sort of holding a lecture series on you know, nonviolence or the, the biography of Jackie Robinson. It was a way to engage. So for us, baseball became a very powerful public diplomacy tool sharing American democratic values with foreign audiences. 
And moreover, the U.S. government overseas, through its embassy, was seen in a different light. Audience viewed us as championing diversity, inclusion, and nonviolence through sports and for providing skills training. Local communities welcomed us warmly because we were not there to lecture, but to engage and to educate. And as with a healthy democracy, sports are vigorously rooted in inclusion. The players accept the rules and the results of the game are met with nonviolence. Baseball's Jackie Robinson is the best example of all that. Recently, when talking about the United States, President Biden said, we lead not by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. So let's play ball. Thank you very much. And I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Ron. <clears throat> that was that was terrific. And thanks to the three of you. I think uh, I'm I'm delighted that in your presentations, you got at something that has uh, that I tried to mention in the intro, but that that gets me whenever there's a discussion of soft power. And that is when we try to think about right. if we call it soft power, obviously, we are contrasting it with hard power. But to try to figure out what that actually means, certainly in the in the initial writings of Joe Nye, uh, the idea of soft power was something that you do almost indirectly. Um, and Ron, when you talk about the, the power of an example, is simply offering the example and letting uh, the audience draw conclusions from it is different from telling people what the example is going to be. And uh, and yet the the what General Sammy was talking about, and also what uh, and and what Kate uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn was talking about, are both examples of of policy questions, right? There are things, there are policy decisions that have to be made, and economics is uh, it's not hard power in the sense of military power, but uh, economics can be pretty hard, and and can be pretty direct. And so, uh, I want to start with you, Ron, and I want to ask how conscious are the policy discussions uh, uh, when you come up with a, with a program like this program about baseball and Jackie Robinson? And also, how, uh, how determinedly does one avoid pushing too hard in order to make it, you know, so you want to use soft power to attract rather than to pull, rather than to uh, pressure people. So how conscious were you of this need to be soft while presenting this? I'm going to ask you first, Ron, and then, and then I have a question for General Sammy and for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn. Sure. Uh, and actually, it, it's a great question. And, it, and it's actually a, a broad one historical. And so let me let me try to, to, to try to chop it down a little bit. Um, as, as you sure. and, and probably a lot of others are aware, you know, we had the um, United States Information Agency that was um, absorbed, uh, combined with, if you will, with the State Department around 1997. And some people lament that loss. Um, I, I actually think it was a very smart move because what had happened previously was USIA was was basically an institution for sharing American culture with the world, which is which is a terrific thing in and of itself. But what they found was that by combining mm -hmm. it with the State Department uh, as one single agency, it became public diplomacy within the department. Uh, and so what public diplomacy actually means is, is now directly engaging mm -hmm. the public on these issues. So no longer were we doing culture for culture's sake, um, it was now using that culture to, to target or using that culture to address issues. Uh, and so um, when we're developing programs, et cetera, those programs are directly related to the um, integrated country strategies that each embassy has overseas. And, and these integrated country strategies devolve from the national security strategy. So in other words, we have, you know, the, the national security strategy more broadly what the U.S. wants to do. 
And then at a local level, at an embassy level, we have what we want to achieve in that country, you know, what the U.S. embassy wants to achieve in that country. And so from there, we then develop public engagements. Uh, you know, we use all the tools that we have to engage the public to, to advocate for these policies, to highlight for these policies. So the example that I, I gave of baseball um, was, was one, uh, was to, to um, you know, again, talk about inclusion, diversity, primarily nonviolence, uh, as opposed to just sort of saying, we're now going to have a lecture on this or who wants me to come to their university and talk about this. Nobody would want that, right? I mean, people would be bored. But by playing baseball, it's right. a lot of fun um, and we can talk about those things. And what was great about it was in both of these countries, we actually had we we actually combined our teams, uh, uh, you know, embassy and, and DOD. We made up Team USA. We challenged the national teams of baseball in each of the respective countries that we did this. We lost nice. because they were such great teams. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the messaging got out there, and that's what's the important the messaging. Thank you. Sure. Well, I, I, and I will say that you know it does it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt relations to uh, to lose. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, I, one one uh, random question I, I wanted to ask you, though, Ron, was uh, how did you know that David Robinson lived in Tanzania when you were in Uganda? Or was that just was that purely coincidental? I did, actually. No, no, I, I did um, uh, primarily um, from his sister because of having worked with Sharon in Romania previously. Uh, and we had talked about that. Plus, I, I had read a little bit mm. about the history of, of the Robinson family. And so then when I moved to Uganda, I thought, oh, well, wait a minute, here's a great opportunity. So, you know, we, we, we reached out to David and, and, you know, invited him up to Uganda and he came up and it was really a, it was a pretty good program. He actually, just as an aside, uh, if I can just add, I was going to say he actually is a coffee farmer. And so while he was there, he, he also discussed things about coffee. Now, that's interesting because I also know that uh, that Jackie Robinson became an executive with Chock Full of Nuts Coffee when he stopped playing baseball for the Dodgers, which I'm sure David already knew. That there's, a, there's, there's an interesting history in there someplace. Um, well, thanks, Ron. Um, General Sammy, I want to build off of this, what Ron was just talking about, and that is when you talk about Chinese investment in Pakistan um, or foreign investment generally in Pakistan, um, how how do Pakistanis relate the um, the reality of the investment to any kind of attitude towards the foreign countries that are doing the investing? Right? Is there um, is there a, a more positive attitude towards China because of these investments they are making in the economic uh, in in the energy field? And and how how aware I I should say so how how aware are people of the 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 self interest of the foreign investment that is trying to sort of improve relations? Uh, right, I think uh, what people appreciate uh, in Pakistan and perhaps all over the world is that and every country has a need and those needs are to be met through partnerships with different countries. And uh, China is a, one of the countries that we've partnered with. And so do many other people. Uh, so so do many other countries. Uh, Chinese uh, impression or the Chinese, uh, uh, I think, uh, should I say, the, uh, the kind of impression people have about China after the uh, BRI investments is uh, positive, to be, uh, to be mm. sure. And people think that these investments have been made to help Pakistan in a time 
when Pakistan really needed investments in infrastructure. Now, what is there for China in it? Of course, there is uh, a good business because the returns are good in the power sector, of course, Uh, and also the diplomacy and the soft power element that we talked about earlier. But should we uh, say that uh, uh, any other country uh, that China partners with uh, has has different opinions about China? Perhaps no. Uh, I think the BRI has... Uh, 80 partners around the world, including ones in Europe, Africa, and many other uh, countries in the world across the entire globe, actually. So I think people have different opinions. Uh, There have been opinions that uh, it's a debt trap uh, Mm -hmm. diplomacy going on, and many others. Our experience hasn't been uh, uh, in line with uh, the debt trap uh, diplomacy experience so far. So I think our experience so far has been better. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the people of Pakistan view it quite positively. Mm -hmm. Uh, But is this it? I think not, again, because we need more investment in the infrastructure. And we have partnered with many other countries as well. I mean, uh, USAID has done some great work in the past. Uh, Asian Development Bank has done some work, continues to do some more Uh, World Bank does a lot of work and that too generates a lot of goodwill for uh, the US Mm -hmm. there. Uh, There is certainly more space uh, for uh, uh, making it more inclusive and a larger uh, uh, cooperation with the US. But uh, uh, I think when the time comes, I think it will only be win-win for both uh, Pakistan and the US. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, General. Um, and so, uh, so Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn, this this gets at something I wanted to uh, uh, that I think fits very well with what you were talking about. Is you were you were describing the uh, projects in the islands at, uh, in a competitive way, and think about how how does the United States and China how are they competing with each other? How should the United States compete with China? If if soft power is in part a kind of thing that you do without trying to draw too much attention to the fact that you're doing it sort of hoping that the the locals will will feel good about you for doing it without you having to talk about it too much. Um, how do we do this in a way that is both sort of appropriately soft, if you will, but is also explicitly in competition with somebody else? So I think that's a great question, Ron. And I think specifically in these islands, what what we do, it's sort of that old, you know, teach a man to fish or fish for him <laughs> right. type of situation. Uh, and in the case of what does the United States do in these islands, what we were looking to do was enhance their technical capacity and capability and enable them to plan and contract and manage these projects themselves mm-hmm. for in the long term then they didn't need assistance of the United States or potentially. So I think there is that element of show them best practices, things that we, the Corps of Engineers, had learned along the way, help them when they get stuck, help them recognize some of the challenges that might not be obvious in terms of long-term costs for these projects, Mm -hmm. in terms of maintenance and operations, because those costs can really add up, especially in those islands. They're so remote, just the shipping costs and logistics of getting, you know, uh, 
air conditioning filters, for example, if they can only come from certain places and then those places know that they sort of have that monopoly with you, they can make those filters very, very expensive and add on the shipping costs. And and that can really be uh, cost prohibitive for, for continuing maintenance. So I think it really, the efforts went to providing them with what they needed. And the United States is focused on healthcare facilities, uh, education facilities, and then basic infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So roads and power and communications networks and those type of things, really focusing on those basic needs so that then the the returns are evident in the communities. And and when so this is all from from your experience when you were uh, the commander of the district there in so you, your office was in Hawaii. Um, how many thousand miles away did your uh, did did your responsibilities go from from Hawaii to Wake to Guam to where else? Yes, so the Honolulu district is very unique. It's the largest geographic district out of the forty three districts for the Corps of Engineers. Most of that's ocean, but I don't let that. Uh, don't let that hold us back. So yes, it included all the islands in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the territories, American Samoa, Guam, Commonwealth of Northern Marianas. Um, and Guam and the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas did see uh, Chinese influence mm-hmm. trying to come in there, specifically with things like casinos and resort uh, construction, those type of those type of hmm. assets, uh, as well as the compact states specifically. So the Republic of Palau, the Republic of Marshall Islands, which has the uh, uh, garrison of on Kwajalein, mm-hmm. as well as the Federated States of Micronesia, which is where I really saw firsthand, one, the government bribe attempt, <laughs> and two, the, the, the project firsthand, this giant road that was being built that went to nowhere that mm-hmm. kind of made you scratch your head. <laughs> like, what is this road for? And why are they building it so large? You could maybe land an aircraft on it. Hmm. Imagine. Well, and I guess the reason why the compact states are especially complicated is because they're they're not U.S. territories. They're more they are sovereign states, and so therefore they were more Correct. they were in a better position to to strike deals with the Chinese than say Absol- other places. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know that the United States necessarily wants to try to prevent that. Mm-hmm. I mean, to General Sammy's point, there's more than enough aid needed. Mm-hmm that it would be great if there could be cooperation between the United States and China versus, you know, more adversarial. Uh, But the other aspect of the compact states is those compacts are coming up for renewal in 2023 and 2024. Mm. And so when you look at the investment that China is making, you know, increasing almost 30% annually over the past five years, promises of millions and millions of dollars that are equal to nearly their total investment over the last three decades. It just, it makes you have questions about why now, mm-hmm. uh, especially, especially with respect to those compacts. And those islands, you know, not a lot of people know about those islands. Uh, they are, they are, you know, almost 4,000 miles away from Hawaii. So they are really far away from the continental United States. And very few people have the opportunity to go out to these amazing, tropical, beautiful islands. But they are strategically located uh, for, you know, both the Chinese and U.S. perspective. Mm -hmm. They're in that second island chain. And I think that we 
definitely have to keep those partners in mind. We've been strong partners with them as agreement with the compacts for since the end after World War II. And where do we go from here in order to make the investment to date mean something? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very true. And, and actually, just when you mentioned a place like Kwajalein, I'm thinking these are, these are, uh, Islands whose names resonate with uh, some very difficult battles in the 1940s, and uh, you know there was a reason why they were strategically important in the Pacific War with Japan, and there was a reason why they're important today. Absolutely, it's amazing to travel around and see the the bunkers and see some of the old weapons and everything that are still there. I mean, you're traveling through battlegrounds, living history right there, and it's. I can't imagine being a Marine trying to take some of those islands. Mm-hmm. It's just unfathomable. Right. So we are we are just about out of time for this this short conversation to uh, to get us going talking about uh, soft power. But I wanted to give each of you a, a chance for a, a final comment. And what I'm curious about from each of you is your perspective on what is it like talking about soft power at an institution that is devoted to training people to use hard power. Um, if we think about the military as generally a, a hard power operation. So I want to start with you, General Sammy, right? Do you, how do you, what's it like to talk about soft power? Do you think that there are better ways we can encourage the military to think about soft power? I think it's, it's a brilliant question. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the hard and soft power go hand in hand mm-hmm. because when military goes in for any operation around the world, Iraq, Syria, uh, any Afghanistan, any other country in the world, it has to have a soft component. How else would people be able to relate with the force that has come in, that it means good for that nation? So that's that's uh, from a U.S. perspective. And from a Pakistan's perspective, uh, when we were doing operations in the federally administered tribal areas towards our western borders with uh, Afghanistan, uh, and it's a very difficult and mountainous terrain, uh, I think quite a nightmare for any military operation. But over the time that those military operations were going on, a lot of effort was being made to carry out the stability operations, to invest into the infrastructure, to invest into the roads, health, education sector, so that people could, and and, uh, and a bit on their businesses too, so that people could relate that this army needs good for them, uh, means good for Mm -hmm. them. And the army actually wishes uh, that this area should be developed. And the nation actually wishes that area to be developed. And uh, a lot of partners actually came together, including USAID and many other partners from the Western world. And development that took place in that FATA region made it possible in 2018 for it to be subsumed in the adjoining province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. And that means a very big thing for Pakistan. That is a historical achievement. And I think a lot of soft power uh, uh, was used by both uh, Pakistan as well as with the partner nations. I think that did the trick. But uh, thank you for the question. I think hard, hard and soft power. Go hand, go in, hand, hand. in hand. Thank, Thank you, General Sammy. So Ron Hawkins, right, uh, for you, the, the the question of how do you talk about soft power um, at a military institution like the U.S. Army War College, I realize this isn't even uh, a, an extra challenge for someone who is coming from the State Department talking about soft power in a hard power uh, world. And so how do you see 
the the better ways or how do you communicate the importance of soft power within this military context and how do you see that kind of cooperation going forward um it, it, it is a, it is a very good question because um especially at a, at a place uh like the army war college where people's careers have been based on on solely focusing on hard power um to take a, a step back and to look at soft power and and why it's important because, uh, you know, from, from, you know, what I have learned here at the War College and in discussions with just individual uh, military folks in, in, in my individual seminars, of course, no one wants to use the full force of hard power. No one wants to go to war. And, and so you're trying to do everything you can not to, to, to go to war. And soft power is a great way to, to have this attractiveness um, to engage foreign audiences in discussions about sometimes very difficult topics. And so in that way, it, it's, it's an option, uh, you know, it's an instrument of power. I mean, under diplomacy to engage the foreign audience, to, to discuss things uh, and to find other avenues uh, to, to come up with solutions. And then at a place like the war college, I think it's, it's sort of um, a refreshing uh, topic because people have not thought about it as much here. They have not focused on it. And what they realize is there are so many tremendous ways that the, the departments of state being a practitioner and, and departments of, uh, Department of Defense also being a practitioner, how we can work together on, on, on these things. And um, you know, a lot of it is, is sort of is branding, is harnessing the, the, the brand of the US military, which in and of itself is very attractive. People are very curious about the military. And so, uh, for example, whenever a ship visit uh, occurs overseas, that was always something that I, I delighted in because people were fascinated to go see a U.S. Mm -hmm. you know, naval ship uh, and to, to talk about those things. So it was a great way for us to look open, transparent, magnanimous by inviting people to tour the ship because they probably have never even toured their own Navy's uh, uh, you know, ships. And so this was, it's, it's a way to be attractive, to invite conversation. And then, um, like I said, here at the War College, I, I think it's definitely a topic that could be talked about more and we could explore more ways on, on how we can cooperate together. So thank you. Thank you for, for having this podcast and, and it being a vehicle in and of itself to discuss. That's great. Thank you, Ron. Uh, and so, uh, over to you for the, uh, the the Kate Sanborn. This the same question to you, especially as the the one U.S. Army officer in the room here, um, as someone who has as someone dealing with the Corps of Engineers, the number of uh, civilian related projects that one is involved with. How do you see uh, the encouraging the dialogue about soft power in a hard power institution like the military? Absolutely, Ron. I do think it's a great question. And it's something that, you know, the Army War College, it sounds kind of counterintuitive to talk about something like soft power. But as we have progressed through the course material and what we've learned and maybe what we've reframed some of our experiences in the military is that hard power is almost a last resort of sorts. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Ron was talking about, we hope to not have to get to that point. We know how to use it. We're masters of our craft in being able to execute hard power. Soft power, though, is it's really what it takes to integrate those instruments of national power. It 
And there is a role for the military and it's how we integrate and how we have synergy across the economic, the information and the diplomatic instruments as well to try to further our national interests, to try to achieve our goals, to try to aid our partners before we get to the place where hard power is maybe necessary. So I think it's a good conversation for us as strategic thinkers, as future senior leaders for a lot of folks in in the military to think about where do we fit in with all the instruments of power and where does the military look to use soft power as well because we do security cooperation exercises. We do a lot of public affairs and and like Ron was talking about, tours of the ships, et cetera. And those are small examples of where the military can integrate with those other instruments to provide that soft power. Well, that's great. And and I, that, that is a perfect place uh, to end this conversation uh, in the hope that the, the the, the bigger conversation about the relationship between hard and soft power can continue. I want to really thank uh, General Sammy, Lieutenant Colonel Sanborn, Mr. Hawkins. Thank all of you for joining us today to talk about soft power here on A Better Peace. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not subscribed to A Better Peace already on the podcatcher of your choice. And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that is how other people can find out more about us. And we are always interested in hearing from you. We are always interested in building this community for these types of conversations. So even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granieri. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.